Good morning, Woodland Hills. I'm Greg Boyd, teaching pastor here at uh, Woodland Hills Church and otherwise known as Pastor Baldy because I had such a good looking shave going on. 2020 keeps on giving. It just keeps on delivering, I'll tell you. So we find ourselves in this situation where on top of the COVID spiking through the ceiling all over the place. By the way, keep in prayer our frontline workers because they're our only line. And those poor folks are working to the point of exhaustion, emotional, physical exhaustion. Keep, keep them in, in, in prayer. Uh, but uh, on top of that, all that, we now are, we have a contested presidential election. Uh, we have, I think, unprecedented uh, polarization. Uh, and understandably, a lot of people are very, very nervous about what's going to happen next. Uh, but I want to say to the people of God, as Jesus said, let not your heart be troubled. My peace I give to you. We've got that peace. And you know, Sean talked about gratitude and the importance of gratitude, especially in situations that are not optimal. Uh, and, and here's one thing you can be grateful for. The one that we look to as our Lord and our only Lord, as our teacher, as our leader, as our example, and as our hope. Uh, he never had to get voted into office, and he sure as heck can't get voted out of office, and, and his lordship can never be contested. Satan tried it, and it didn't work. So praise God for that. And I encourage us to just keep our eyes focused on him. Uh, he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Uh, and whatever happens here, uh, our eyes are fixed on him. I, I also... I'm kind of feeling inspired by what Sean said about worship. So I, I, I just want to say a little word about that. Um, and, you know, since we didn't have uh, a worship set, uh, that should buy me a little more time. And besides, Mary Van Sickle's not here. And Ruth, who's running the show, is too nice to throw a pen at me if I go over a little bit. So I'm good to go. Sit back. Enjoy yourselves. We might be here for a while. <laughs> just kidding. Uh, but see, here we have temporarily suspended uh, the, the weekend worship, but as Sean pointed out, we, we, we never suspend worship. In fact, you can no more pause, you can, you can no more put a pause on worship uh, than you can put a pause on loving your mom and dad and your, your spouse or your kids or your friends. Uh, you can no more put a pause on worship than you can put a pause on being awed by a beautiful sunset or, or a clear starry night. Uh, C.S. Lewis taught us that uh, worship is simply the heart's natural response to God. God is beauty itself, truth itself, goodness itself. And, and, and when, we, when our eyes are open to see that, when you have a correct conception of God, a beautiful conception of God, you can't help but go, wow, beautiful, incredible. That's what worship is. Worship is us saying, wow, about God. And see, what, what C.S. Lewis noticed was that when you're... When, you, when, when you're hearing a masterpiece of music or awed by a work of art or a sunset or the starry sky and you say, wow, that's incredible, that's beautiful, uh, that is actually part of the experience. The experience is less complete if that expression isn't there. The response, it's just natural. There's something unnatural about not saying that. So you can't put a pause on worship. We will never put a pause on worship. Um, in fact, Paul, ta Paul taught us that uh, it's as we gaze on the beauty of the God revealed in Jesus Christ. This is 2 Corinthians 3. Uh, our minds, uh, the veil over our minds have been lifted. So now we can behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And that all is taking place in our imagination. But as we behold that beauty, he says, we're transformed from one degree of glory to another. Uh, the more you gaze upon and participate in and go wow towards uh, the overwhelming beauty of God, the more it beautifies us. 
That's what Paul's teaching there. So we'll never put a, a pause on that. Now here's a principle of spiritual warfare that I think really applies here in this COVID season that we find ourselves. Uh, when circumstances prevent you from engaging in a kingdom activity in one way, and you're tempted to just to pause the activity, that's the time to do the opposite, to aggressively pursue other ways of doing that activity. Uh, and nowhere does this apply more than, than, than to worship. Yeah, one way of worshiping has, has been closed to us, but rather than putting a pause on, on, on worship, to say, oh, I'll get back to it whenever the church gets back to it. No, it's time to double down on other ways. And so, Shauna mentioned individuals. If, if this is not a, 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 yet a habit of yours, I encourage all of us, no better time than now, to lock in a time, a, a, make it part of your schedule, where you're going to have your own time with God. Uh, and, and that can involve singing like we do when we, when we come together, but it can take many other forms. Just follow the Spirit. He'll lead you. But to, to make time for—this is where we get our fueling. And, and, and just to yeah, just love God loving you and, and, and go wow at his, at his beauty. And for families, if this is not yet a pattern in your family, this is a great time to start. Um, have a family gathering. Uh, make it a regular practice, and, and uh, it can, that can involve singing, but it can involve many other things. And I would invite your kids uh, in age-appropriate ways to participate in deciding what that worship should look like, but double down on this. And see, then, if we're all worshiping on our own, as we should be when we come together, when we can finally get together, have physical proximity, and boy, do I long for that, well, we'll be all the better, because we've been doing it uh, on our own. And, and so, you know, you know it, that may feel awkward at first. Because anytime you do a new thing, it feels awkward. It, it moves you out of your comfort zone because our comfort zone is always about sameness. But see, all growth in the kingdom requires our moving outside of our comfort zone. I always say here that the kingdom starts with our first drop of blood because the kingdom always looks like Calvary. It, it's about sacrifice. And so it will feel awkward but I encourage you to press through that awkwardness to, to, to arrive at a new normal. It doesn't take long, but it does take some time. So press through that. Uh, but lock this in. When you're, when you're tempted to put anything on, about your relationship with God on hold, know that that's a temptation. And, and do the opposite. Be pursuing God. In fact, see, there is no coasting in the kingdom. If you're coasting, and I feel a certain energy about this word right now, so tune in. Um, if, 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 if you're coasting, you kind of just kind of, oh, just putting the cruise control on. And it's so easy to do since our patterns have all been interrupted. But see, if you think you're on cruise control, you're actually slowing down. If you think you're coasting, you're actually backsliding. There's a spiritual law of gravity here in this oppressed world that if, if we're not pursuing God, we're drifting from God. So when you're tempted to, to drift, tempted to put on hold, to stop anything, double down and press in. Uh, and that's, that's how we grow. Okay, so uh, I, as far as I'm concerned, you already got your money's worth in terms of a sermon, but uh, let's, have, let's have another sermon since we've got a lot of time here. All right, we're, uh, we're on the Sermon on the Mount, and more specifically, we're talking about salt and light, which is a the theme of verses 13 through 16. And here's how it reads. You are the salt of the earth, Jesus says. But if the salt has lost its taste, how can its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything, but is thrown out and trampled underfoot. Talked about that several weeks ago. Then Jesus says, you are the light of the world. A city built on a hill cannot be hid. 
No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it under a bushel basket, but they put it on a lampstand, and it gives light to all that's in the house. That's the purpose of the light. In the same way, Jesus says, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works, and the result will be they will give glory to your Father in heaven. Uh, Lord, anoint this message. Give it life. Give it authority to build your kingdom in our hearts and minds more thoroughly than they have been. In Jesus' name, amen. So last week, Tara Beth, and I'll tell you, a word about, hats off to Tara Beth. Thank you, Tara Beth, for, for sharing with us last week. Powerful message. Uh, she is just one gifted, courageous uh, young leader in this kingdom movement that is, is coming around. And uh, I feel like we are just blessed to be able to have her speak in to pour into a Woodland Hills Church. So thank you, Tara Beth. We love you. But as she noted last week, she kind of gave the Old Testament background to the, the, the salt and light passage. And she points out that it all started with Abraham. God called Abraham. Get out of Ur. And then, even though Abraham was getting up in years, and Sarah was getting up in years, way beyond up in years, uh, he promised Abraham that, that he would have descendants, he'd have a son, and his descendants would be as numerous as the stars in the sky. And then he says about those descendants, they will be blessed, and they will be a blessing. In fact, they will be blessed to be a blessing. And the blessing that they were be, to, to be was to be, uh, to put on display to the other nations, something of the true character of God and something of God's will for other people. Uh, they, 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 they had a blessing, but they had that vocation. The vocation was to bless the other nations by drawing them to Yahweh. And the primary metaphor that's used to describe that role that Israel plays is that Israel is to be light that shines in the darkness. You find that metaphor used throughout Scripture, to be light that shines in the darkness. Uh, and then they, in other passages, that light gets associated with being on the top of a mountain. And that light on the top of the mountain gets associated with Jerusalem, which is called the heavenly city. Um, it's kind of how, how this thing progresses. So Israel was called to be like this city set on a hill that shines into the darkness and that draws the nations to Yahweh. That was the role there. God had hoped. And see, in the ancient world, uh, before there was all this light pollution, Tara talked about that last week, um, you could see a candlelit city from miles away. Uh, you're traveling in the dark and you see a glow on the horizon. That means you're coming upon your city. And that's always good news because in the ancient world, traveling at night in the dark is dangerous stuff. So that, 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 that beacon of light uh, is, is a beacon of safety. That's what God hoped Israel would be. God hoped that Israel would shine like the city from a mountaintop. He hoped that his people would model to the rest of the world what it is to worship the one true God and be free from idolatry. Uh, he wanted his people, he hoped his people would, would, would trust him alone as king and, 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 and trust him for protection and therefore not need to rely on human armies. And, and God hoped that that would be modeling to the other nations what it is to have the, uh, the, the beauty of having a trust in a heavenly king rather than an earthly king. And that they would learn the ways to walk that avoid war and avoid violence. God hoped that his people would demonstrate God's character and will towards the vulnerable. And so that we read throughout the Old Testament over and over again, and in the New Testament, uh, that instructions that, that Yahweh gives uh, his people about caring for uh, the poor, the orphan, the widow, the immigrant, the foreigner, the alien, even the enemy, in some passages anyways, uh, he wants that to be modeled towards the other nations, that they would begin to learn that they too, the importance of caring for the vulnerable in their society. In a word, God wanted Israel to model righteousness. 
And righteousness, remember, it's a covenantal concept. It means right relatedness. And so God wanted Israel to model to the nations how to be rightly related with God and how to be rightly related with one another, how to be rightly related with other nations and how to uh, be rightly related to the earth and to the animal kingdom. The metaphor that's used for that is there to be the light that shines in the darkness. Uh, You find that everywhere, but that metaphor is especially intense and used in interesting ways in Isaiah. So I'm just going to give you a few samplings of this. I I, want to pat myself on the back here because I actually took out about Half of the passages I was going to go over because it was kind of redundant and it's the kind of thing that geeks would like, but uh, others would like, come on, get to the point. So, uh, but it is a small sampling of, the, uh, of, of what we find in Isaiah. Where's my passages? See, Tara Beth is a real preacher. She actually brings her Bible on stage. Where's, oh, here they are. Okay. All right. He says, I will get, did I just say that I'm not a real preacher? <clears throat> Isaiah 49, 6. <clears throat> I will give you, talking to Israel here, as light to the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Note the association there of light and salvation. Because to have light is to, for people's eyes to be opened about who the true God is and, and what his will is for our lives. Um, then in uh, Isaiah 42, he says this, verses 6 and 7. I have taken you by the hand and kept you. <clears throat> I have given you as a covenant to the people. Whenever you hear the people, uh, spoken to Jews, it's talking about non-Jews, the goyim, the Gentiles. Uh, I've given you as a a covenant to the people, a light to the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness. Uh, This phrase, I give you as a covenant to the people. Now just think about that. Uh, To the the non-Jews, the rest of the world. And see, God's heart was that the covenant that he had with Israel, he wanted to invite all the other nations into that covenant. Uh, you know, some Jews later on just thought that being chosen meant that God's just going to bless them and that they're God's favorites. But God's heart was always to bless them so they'd be a blessing to all the other nations. And, and, and that they come into this covenant. I'm giving you as a covenant to the people to be that light that shines, that opens eyes. And then in uh, Isaiah uh, chapter 2, we find that sometimes, uh, here's an example of how that light now gets placed out on a mountaintop so that the whole world can see it. And so it says this in Isaiah 2, verses 2 through 4. In the days to come, Yahweh says, the mountain of the Lord's house uh, will, will be established as the highest of the mountains. And it shall be raised above the hills. All the nations shall stream to it. Many people shall come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. Incredible passage. Here's the background on this holy mountain uh, concept. Um, All all ancient Near Eastern people uh, believed that their chief national gods lived on the top of mountains. Uh, it's just, it was just a part of their culture. That's how they, they, they view God. And they all have songs sung about uh, how God comes, their God comes down from the mountains to do war and all sorts of things like that. And see, Israel, the Israelites were, were, were part of that ancient Near Eastern culture. And so Israelites naturally believe that too. God, God lives on a mountaintop. And the mountain that he lived on, they believe, was Mount Zion. 
And that's why they built the, their temple there, Jake, the, the house of the God of Jacob. Because like all other ancient Near Eastern people, uh, they believed that God needed or at least wanted a temple, which was to his house. So the temple was the house of God that's set on this hill. And it's also where Jerusalem is, the heavenly city. Uh, all ancient, so you read a lot about holy mountains and holy hills and, 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 and the, the temple is God's house. And in dozens of passages, we hear about Jerusalem being this heavenly city and the city of God and, 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 and things of that sort. The city that's supposed to shine on the highest mountain that will reach the entire world. Now, I know that I am probably supposed to say at this point, God said it and I believe it and that settles it for me. God said it. Yeah, I would have been good in the Schmaltzies 50s. But I, I, see, here's the thing. I believe the Bible is divinely inspired, but I do not believe that God lives on a mountaintop. Sorry. Um, or, or, or that he has ever lived on a mountaintop. You know, Jesus, in John, in John 4, Jesus is talking to the Samaritan woman at the well. And um, at one point she asked him this question. You know, she says, you Jews uh, worship down in Jerusalem because uh, you think Mount Zion is the, the, the mountain of God. But we Samaritans, uh, we, we worship here at Mount Gerizim uh, because we think this is Yahweh's mountains. Uh, which one is right? And Jesus responds to her by saying, lady, I'm telling you, uh, time's coming. Pretty soon it's going to be revealed that those, the true worshipers of God are those who worship in spirit and in truth. Those are the only qualifications. Where you're located does not matter. So it seems to me that Jesus is here teaching that God does not live on a mountaintop in case any of you needed more proof of that. So then you ask the question, well, then why are there so many passages about God's mountain, the holy hill, God's habitation, and all the rest of that? Uh, my answer to that is, is just this, that, that um, these, this is what all ancient Near Eastern people believed. And God, whose power is revealed on the cross, God is not a coercive God. He influences folks towards, towards the truth as much as possible, but he never will coerce. He doesn't lobotomize people so they only have true thoughts. So there comes a point where God has to just accept people as they are, and he accommodates their false beliefs, their culturally conditioned beliefs. It's really just a matter of God saying, I, I will speak the language you speak, and I'll work through the categories that you have to work through. And so if, if, you're, if, if you're fixed on this idea that I'm a mountain deity, that, that's actually the term that scholars use for the gods of the ancient Near East. They're mountain deities. Uh, and, and so the Lord's saying, if you think I'm a mountain deity and, and you're persistent on that, well, then I'll, I'll use that to communicate my truth. And so God used this mountain idea to uh, uh, communicate the truth that you're to be this light that's on the top of this mountain that shines for the whole world. God's just accommodating and using it for good purposes. Now, there's one problem with this. <clears throat> the one problem is that Mount Zion, <clears throat> excuse me for a second here. Mount Zion isn't a very big hill, a very big mountain. In fact, it's more of a hill. Uh, here's a picture of it. It's, it's, uh, it, it doesn't rate really high. It's no Everest, that's for sure. And, and this bothered some of the biblical authors. Um, it, it, Isaiah and, and the prophet Micah, for example, because it just seems like if God is the true God, if Yahweh is the true God, shouldn't he be on the tallest of the mountains? He should have the biggest hill. It's no fair. Yahweh's, you know, Baal, who was this Canaanite deity, lived on Mount Siphon, and that's a huge mountain. So how, how come the pagan God gets the big mountain and we get a tiny little hill? Yahweh should do better. Not only that, but how, how is Jerusalem supposed to be this beacon of light uh, to the whole world uh, if it's on this tiny little hill? can't see it from that far away. You know, if, if it's going to shine to the whole world, and of course, 
At this point, people don't know that the world's round. Uh, so the reasoning is that if, 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 we're, if the light is supposed to hit the whole world, well, then, then it's got to be the highest mountain. So it's got to be up there. That was a problem. And so the way that uh, Micah and Isaiah envision getting around that is they say, well, no, there come a time. How's that passage go? I had it here. He says, in days to come, the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be raised above the hill. And so their, their belief is that when, when Israel finally gets right with God, Mount Zion's going to grow. It's going to grow to become the highest of all the mountains in the world, and that's how the light will shine for everybody to see. Now, Israel was called to be that light, but they failed at it pretty miserably for a number of reasons. They interpreted their chosen status as simply favoritism. Uh, and they, instead of being this beacon of light, they just kind of made themselves into a holy club. Uh, and instead of serving and blessing the other nations, they end up judging the other nations, looking down and even despising the other nations. But see, that didn't thwart the promises of God. Uh, God fulfilled his promise to Abraham. Um, and he fulfilled even those passages that promise that Israel will someday be the light of the world. He, those got fulfilled. But they got fulfilled this way. When God himself decided to become one of the descendants of Abraham and fulfill it himself. And that's who Jesus is. Uh, he, he embodies in his person, he embodies all of God's dreams for Israel. He's the one true Israelite. And now he's the one true light of the world. He's doing what Israel was called to do but failed at doing. And we find this in a lot of ways in the New Testament. Uh, you know, several days after Jesus was born, they bring him to the temple, as was the custom, to dedicate him to God and to get him circumcised. So they come to Simeon, who was the, the, the high priest. And Simeon had been told by the Spirit of God that he would not die until uh, he beheld the Lord's Messiah. And so they bring Jesus into the temple and they give him to Simeon. And it says this in Luke 2. Verses 28 through 32. Simeon took him, Jesus, took Jesus in his arms and praised God saying, Master, now you are dismissing your servant in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, the goyim, um, and, and, and for the glory, a, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory to your people Israel. Okay, Israel's going to be glorified in this Messiah because in Jesus, Israel, he's the one true Israel, will be doing what God always wanted Israel to do. He's going to be a light of salvation to the Gentiles. He'll be shining all over the place. And when Jesus says, I am the light of the world, this is the background. He is, he is doing what Israel was, what was called to do. Uh, now, when Jesus says, I am the light of the world, the implies that it's singular. There's only one true light. Uh, John tells us that in his prologue. Uh, and Jesus is the light that enlightens everyone who comes into the world. And insofar as anyone has light, they've got Jesus, whether they know it or not. He's the light, John 1, 9, that enlightens everyone who comes into the world. He's always shining. Uh, so it's singular. He is the light of the world. And yet Jesus says to us that he says, you are the light of the world. Let your good works be, sh be shining in front of people. So how do we put these two th things together? And the answer uh, is, is, is just this. Uh, Jesus is the light of the world. But notice that when Jesus says he's the light of the world, he's got a body, and he's saying that through that body. And he's, he's the light of the world through that body. So it, it's, it's an embodied light, right? So when 
he's the light of the world when he's God incarnate here in, in this five foot, 420 pound, I'm guessing here, a body that's kind of the average uh, height and weight of uh, male Jews I've read uh, back in the first century. So he's got his body number one here uh, and he's the light of the world. But see, when he ascends into heaven and sends forth his spirit, he creates a new body. And this is a corporate body. This is the body of all who truly surrender their lives to him. Uh, We're called the body of Christ. And we're attached to the same head that the first body was attached to. And so we're called and empowered by the power of the Spirit to do the same things that Jesus did in his earthly body when he was here. We really are an extension of Jesus himself. Do you see that? So we're an extension of the light. The light shines through us. Now notice, it's not our own light. We're not going to be cranking our light. I'm going to light up. No, we don't crank out our own light. Uh, uh, We're the conduits of the light, not the source of the light. Jesus is the source. But we are then to be the hands and the feet and the mouthpiece of Jesus. We're to be the light that shines in the darkness in just the same way that, that, that Jesus did. So Jesus fulfilled God's hope for Israel by being, by, by, by shining in whatever dark place he could find. Because uh, see, the point, of, the point of light is to shine, is to be visible. Um, light that's put under a bushel is of no use whatsoever. And so we find Jesus, and remember the kingdom begins with your first drop of blood. It begins by going outside of our comfort zone. When you look at the ministry of Jesus, everything, the people he spent most of the time with, the people he usually ministered to, were the kind of people that most decent Orthodox Jews didn't want to hang out with. Uh, he gravitated towards them. He, 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 he hung out with the tax collectors and the prostitutes. He ministered to the, the disease, the sick, those with infirmities, which everyone else thought were just being judged by God. And, and he, he, he comes into that darkness and he displays the light of God by healing them. And Jesus crosses all these, like I pointed out several weeks ago, crosses all these ethnic lines, these taboos. He breaks these taboos on who you're supposed to talk to and whatnot. He, he relates to the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman. And Jews weren't supposed to talk to Samaritans. Holds up Samaritans as heroes in and, and some of his parables. He, he interacts with the Roman centurion and heals her daughter. Uh, he goes out where other people didn't want to go out. And why does he do that? Well, because that's what light does. It shines in the darkness. The point of light is to shine. This is why Isaiah and Micah had to envision Mount Sinai as growing taller and taller and taller. Why? Because the point of light is to shine, to enlighten what is there. This is why Jesus said, don't put your light under a a, a bushel basket. That's kind of defeating the purpose. You put it on a lampstand. Why? Because light's supposed to shine. It's got to shine. It's made to go out into the darkness. And this, folks, is something I think God's people have always, always struggled with. It's the going out part. Um, Israel failed for that reason. I like to be blessed. I, that, that, that vocation about going out into darkness, nah. So they look at those Gentiles and they see them increasingly over time as just degraded and disgusting. And they, now have, they want to stay away from them rather than go out and shine light to them. And it, the early church struggled with this. Um, you know, Jesus' last words, Matthew 28, 19. Go out into the world, you who are the light of the world. Go out into the darkness. Make disciples of all nations. Go out into the world. Well, you go to the book of Acts, and we find several years later, the apostles are still all hanging out in Jerusalem. What's with this? What happened to that go out instruction? They're hanging out in Jerusalem. It gets so bad 
that God has to go to a Gentile, a guy named Cornelius, who was a Roman centurion, but he was a God-fearer. Some Gentiles uh, actually uh, worshipped Yahweh. Uh, they're, they're called God-fearers. And so uh, he knew about Yahweh, he didn't know about Jesus. But uh, he says to Cornelius in a dream, Cornelius, will you go to Joppa, and, and there you'll find a guy named Peter, and uh, will you tell him to please come to your house and preach the gospel? Because that's what he was supposed to do. So God, it gets so bad that God has to go to the Gentiles to sort of evangelize the early Christians so that they would come and evangelize the Gentiles. It's, uh, God finds ways of accomplishing things uh, when his people are going to be stubborn. And then he's got to give Peter this bizarre vision three different times, the exact same vision, because Peter can could be kind of thick in the head. And, and he, he does it to drive home this point. Peter, stop thinking about Gentiles or anybody as being unclean. <laughs> Knock that off. That was back then, Leviticus 11. No more. I want you to go out among these Gentiles. We've always struggled with this. Peter had, had, had led his, 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 the light that he was to be bringing uh, to be in a nice little comfy bushel basket. And he, just kind of nice and closed like it here. Because here's the thing. It's part of our fallen nature that we, 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 we cling to sameness. We like familiarity. Um, we don't like things that are not familiar. Don't, think, don't like things that aren't the same. We feel more comfortable when we're around people that are familiar to us, that look like us, talk like us, think like us, dress like us, like the same kind of music, have the same kind of ideas that we have. It's just easier, life easy, easier that way. And in fact, it's part of our fallen nature that, that we tend to Look with suspicion upon the other. What is different? Xenophobia. To have a, a it can, can, can come to an absolute fear of what you don't understand, what's different than you. So we like to be in a nice little, nice little bushel basket, a bushel basket of our preferences, of the way we like things. It's our comfort zone. It makes life nice. And this is why these Jewish Christians, even though Jesus said go out into all the world, now they're hanging out in Jerusalem several years after that. And they're thinking if we go to those Gentiles, those Gentiles are dirty and nasty and unorthodox and they smell and they don't they eat meat with blood in it and all the rest. And, and we don't want to go out there. We'll just enjoy the blessing right here. Forget about that vocation. See, they, they wanted the blessing, but they forgot that they were blessed so that they could be a blessing. They wanted the blessing, but they forgot that they were the body of Christ and are called and empowered to do exactly what Jesus did in his body number one. They like the blessing, but they forgot that the church is supposed to be a light that's visible to all. They like the blessing, but they forgot that light is supposed to be shining in the darkness. It defeats the purpose if you keep it from the darkness, if you have it a little cloistered in quarantine. They like the blessing, but they forgot that to be the blessing that they're supposed to be, they have to get out of their bushel basket of comfort and preferences and relate to people that are different from them. And see, so as the corporate body of Christ, we are called to do exactly what Jesus did. And as I mentioned, Jesus, Jesus mixed it up all over the place because that's what light does. Light's supposed to shine. And so also, we're to ask the question, where is the darkness so that we can be light? Jesus went where he went because that's where the darkness was oppressing the people the most. And those are the people that were most hungry for it. Uh, we are to individually and collectively be a, an extension of that body the body of, of Jesus Christ. So we're called and empowered to, to shine the love of God into the darkness by how we're willing to sacrifice for others, how we're willing to be inconvenienced for the sake, for the benefit of others. That's the good works that Jesus is talking about. It's, it's works that benefit others. It's works of love that expresses the character of God. 
And so part of our calling is to be, we, we are blessed. We are tremendously blessed. And now we want to use that blessing to bless folks who are hungry with food and folks who don't have homes with homes. We want to use that blessing, sacrifice from that blessing, whatever God's given to us, uh, in order to care for people who are sick and heal the brokenhearted and visit the prisoner in prison and to befriend the friendless. Uh, we want to use that blessing to uh, take care of people in any way, shape, and form we can to mentor kids after school. Uh, this is just what we're called to do. And we're blessed, but we have to always realize that our, we naturally gravitate to a homogenous bubble. And, and that is a light trapper. A homogenous bubble is a light trapper. You should write that one down because that's pretty good. Uh, it, it's... it's we, to be, the call of the kingdom is to befriend folks that look different from you, to, to cross those ethnic lines uh, and, and invite diversity into your life because we've got to get used to that because on the, on, on the, we're on the heavenly throne when this dream of God that God had for Israel and that was fulfilled in Jesus, when this is fulfilled, it tells us in Revelation 7 that people will come from every tribe and every tongue and every nation and they'll be gathered around that throne and it will be beautiful. That's the, the beauty of the kingdom is that it, the only thing these folks have in common is that they're attracted to the light. <laughs> That's, they have that light in common. Uh, all the other differences, they just got to work out, but they will do that because they're part of the light. That's what the light does. Uh, have a kingdom perspective where the difference is not something to be suspicious of or feared, but something to be embraced. And to see it not as something that's a deterrent, but as something that's beautiful. We're called to be doing what Jesus did. And see, by displaying the character of God to people, by being light, Jesus says, well, that's how people are going to glorify your Father in heaven. Uh, they're not going to glorify you. And if we're doing it right, it shouldn't be like, look what good people we are. No, if we're doing it right, it's, it's look at the Lord that we serve. Uh, and, 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 and so people, as they see that, those who have hearts that are open are drawn to that. And God will use that to then grow this mustard seed kingdom uh, one, one soul at a time. But I also want to say this. We don't shine in order to get people to sign on the dotted line. Now will you believe in Jesus? Uh, in some ministries you get that flavor where it's kind of like, now that we've done all these good works for you, we've been so nice to you, now will you believe? And sign on the dotted line, become part of us, believe what we believe, uh, that can easily begin to feel manipulative. Like, you don't really care about the people. All you're looking for is converts. And our call is to care about the people. People are an end in themselves and should never be used as a means to another end. Well, that, write that one down. That, 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 that was inspired right there. And I'm not going to repeat it because I'll get it wrong. But uh, yeah, we, we shine because we're the body of Christ. This is just who we are and this is what we do. It shines in the darkness. We shine with the self-sacrificial love of Christ. And, the, and, and we shine because, and we're maybe at different places with this, but you find that this is what joy looks like. You shine and sacrifice for others because that is the best way to live. Yes, it's following the example of Jesus, but you find that there's joy in that. The greatest joy you can have is sacrificing for others. Um, that's what, part of what Jesus meant when he said, if you'll learn how to lose your life, Give up on that self-centered, I got to get, I got to keep, I got to grab, I got to be secure. Life, if you lose that, put all your trust in God and lose that, well, then you'll find your life. Lose your life, you will find your life. Uh, and again, God, God, I didn't need that paper anyways. God will use that, and this is what the Spirit does, to draw people in. Uh, and he uses us to do that as is appropriate. We, we, when we ask, why would you care like this? The answer is, well, we have a Lord who cares for us. We've been blessed and we just want to be a blessing. 
God uses that to draw people into the kingdom. Okay, I'm going to uh, end with two announcements and a video. Because it's the strangest ending you've ever had to a message. But these two announcements and video are both, you'll see, really pertinent to this message. So um, here, here's two opportunities that we have to do what I just was talking about. To shine a little bit. To, to put on display God's character. Um, the first is uh, the ministry that, that Shauna mentioned, uh, or this uh, outreach, where we're collecting blankets and masks. And I encourage you to participate in that. Uh, we'll have a, just a drop box outside the church and just drop it off there and we can deliver it to the, the, the Maplewood Homeless Shelter. Uh, beautiful expression of, of God's character. A second thing is there's a ministry that we have here uh, that we partner with called Walking with a Purpose. And these folks go out to the, the 10 villages uh, where homeless people uh, live. Uh, and they just develop relationships with them. And right now they're doing it in a socially distanced way, which is kind of awkward, but it's still way, 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 way better than nothing. Uh, but uh, um, you go out into these, these places and, and befriend them. And uh, then they meet, meet whatever needs they can meet. And we're always collecting to get things to be able to give socks where socks are needed or food where food is needed and things of that sort. Um, and then the third one, oh, oh so I, 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 I mentioned that just so that uh, you can participate in that if you want. You have more information on the, on the website and, and you can be part of that or be just supporting that. And the third thing I want to mention is it has to do with our tiny home project. In fact, uh, some of the folks that are finding themselves uh, who are, have been uh, invited to live in this, in this settled village have come out of the relationships that developed with these folks uh, that are uh, walking with a purpose. So here's a, this is a kind of a celebration. It is a, a, one of the most beautiful expressions of light that I've had the honor of witnessing and it's all the greater honor that Woodland Hills got to participate in this. So just, you want something to be grateful for? Watch this and give thanks to God. Settled. As kingdom people, we get countless opportunities to partner with the Spirit to change the world. Over the last three years, five churches have said yes to the calling to love their neighbor as themselves in a very specific way. Along with Settled, they're working to develop sacred settlements of tiny homes to welcome the most despised, unloved, and unwanted outcasts of society into a loving, supportive community. These churches are answering the call of homemaking with the homeless. Whether they've offered their land to plant a sacred settlement community, given resources to build homes, or offered people and ideas to sustain the movement, they've all said yes to this great adventure of love. In 2017, Settle's founder met with Woodland Hills Church in Maplewood, looking for a space to build Settle's first tiny home. When Woodland Hills heard about the vision and plans, they said yes and stepped out in faith. They funded the first tiny home prototype and offered space and a team of volunteers to build it. And with that, a movement was launched. As Settled continued to follow God's leading, they took volunteers to visit homeless camps in the woods, to visit people experiencing homelessness who said yes to meeting and sharing with the volunteers. These groups included members of the Woodbury Lutheran Church's Men's Bible Study. The men were building relationships in the camps when the 2018 polar vortex hit. As temperatures plunged, volunteers rushed to move people from the woods into a hotel. And when the storm ended, the church said yes again, and they committed to continuing in these new relationships. 
A few months later, Settled was continuing to share their vision with other churches, and the heart of the senior pastor at Faith Lutheran Church in Forest Lake was stirred. He believed that they could be the tip of the spear in bringing the project to a suburban context. When he brought back the idea to his church, the congregation gave their yes, and a discernment process for churches was birthed. It was another yes and another step forward. As the media picked up Faith Lutheran's story, the missions pastor at Colonial Church of Edina saw the news and had an idea. What if they created a parking lot mission trip during the summer to engage their congregation about homelessness and invite them to sponsor and build a tiny home? He shared this idea with the church and Colonial said yes. And through their dedication and generosity, a second tiny home was built. When Mosaic Church in St. Paul learned about the program, they believed they had something unique to offer from an urban perspective. Mosaic knew that in order for sacred settlements of tiny homes to succeed, neighbors needed to be on board. They said yes to helping Settled develop a neighborhood outreach strategy based on the work they'd already done connecting with their neighbors. And as a congregation, they agreed to move forward with plans to host the first sacred settlement in St. Paul. Five churches, five denominations, five cities, one mission. Looking back, we can see all of this happened only because a series of individuals and small groups and congregations took a step of faith into the unknown. They did this because they saw the beautiful expression of the kingdom that can only be created when the body of Christ works together on behalf of the least of these. What's happening now? Four more houses are being built by these churches who have said yes. We're continuing to work together in faith to help create the first sacred settlement in the Twin Cities. The world is changing. What will the church look like in the next generation? Among other things, it might look a little like this, a movement of yeses that answers the call to welcome the poor into our abundance. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. Yes. Yes. Definitely yes. Yes. Thank you for all your yeses. We couldn't have done it without you. See, if we were all here together right now, if we were all gathered together, I would say, everybody say, yes, yes. And you'd all be going, yes. And they'd be clapping and screaming. And we'd be going, praise God, hallelujah. Imagine that, okay? You have to fill in the blanks these days with your imagination. Oh, yeah, come on. It's praise God. Uh, it's, it's just beautiful being a part of this. Um, uh, as Shoto said, uh, say yes means you go out into the unknown. What's different? the unusual. It's not your normal zone of life. Uh, you dare. And it always involves some, some kind of sacrifice. But isn't it beautiful uh, when the people of God shine like this? I love it. The different churches coming together and, and just saying, what can we do about this problem? Forget about fighting over what government should do about it. What should, what, how can we shine light into this darkness? Because when people don't have homes, that is darkness. It's dehumanizing. And uh, it's just beautiful that we can shine this way. And I, mark this word here, I I'm not a prophet, not a son of a prophet, but I believe that this is the beginning of a movement. And uh, I'm praying, and will you pray with me, that other churches catch this vision and start uh, uh, doing this in their locales. Wouldn't it be just wonderful if uh, after all this time we've had, uh, about a century actually, of the church you know, punting on this and punting on most social issues. Oh, that's the government's job. We'll just save souls. Wouldn't it be beautiful after a hundred years of that nonsense, we finally realize that we're the body of Christ and we're supposed to be doing exactly what 
Jesus did, and we start doing that as a collective whole. If the church across the nation began to get a vision for this, Christians are actually doing something about homelessness. That would make the news. That would be light shining in the darkness, praise God. And people will come to glorify the Father. Because they'll say, well, gosh, that's that's a beautiful thing. Uh, They can't be all bad if, if they're doing that. Don't put your light under a bushel. You gotta let it shine individually and collectively. Shine, shine, shine. All right. Uh, I'm supposed to close by reminding you that, and I'm gonna have a, a word of prayer here at the end, but uh, that there are prayer Zoom rooms available. If you have any need, you're going through something, and how could you not be going through something? It's 2020. Uh, but it, it, if it's something in particular, I encourage you to uh, pray with these folks. Uh, don't carry that burden alone. Uh, I want to remind you about the Muse cast that we have on Tuesdays at, on, uh, at 4 o'clock where they take the message and they just go a little deeper with it and talk around it and explore some stuff. And also, I uh, encourage you to, to check out the gathering groups. Uh, you know, we, we can't meet together uh, in, with, as a whole uh, for a while, um, but we've got to double down on finding other ways of staying connected. And so these gathering groups, are, they, they just discuss the sermon topic, and you might be talking to your next-door neighbor, or it might be somebody in China for all you know. It's, it's people from all over the world come to this, so I encourage you to be a part of that. I'll close with this. Lord, thank you. We give you thanks for being a God who uh, is Lord forever, and never voted in, will never be voted out, and can't be contested. We thank you, God, that you are our hope. And the darker the season gets here, the more we give you thanks for being light and for being a rock and something solid and something that's not changing. And so as we go now about our week, uh, Lord, I, I pray we do it with a sense of your peace on the inside that comes from having our eyes fixed on you. I pray we go about it uh, with the awareness that we are the arms and the eyes and the mouthpiece of Jesus. I pray we go about this week with the awareness that uh, we have light to shine. And so open our eyes to the, air, the, the, the areas of darkness that you're calling us individually and collectively to shine into. We give you thanks in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, amen. And we just set another record. This is the shortest church service Woodland Hills has ever, ever had. (laughs) All right. And now some people are giving thanks. Hey, God bless you guys. See you next week. Bye-bye.